One of the very first memories that I have of politics is sitting in the car with my dad as he was listening to talk radio. I was probably nine or ten years old, and it was a few days uh, before that year's presidential election. And I remember listening to the talk radio host uh, going on and on about how the person that he was endorsing was the right person to be elected, and all the reasons why the other guy was the wrong guy to vote for. And he probably had some valid points. I'm not quite sure. I'm, I was too young to really understand all that he was talking about. But here's what my nine-year-old brain did think about, and I still remember it today. As I listened to this talk, radio hosts go, go on and on, my thoughts were, the right guy had better get elected, or come January, I may not have a place to live because the United States may cease to exist the way that he was talking. And so, as I thought about it, my very first memory about politics was more than a memory, it was a feeling. It was fear, fear in politics. Fast forward over 30 years, and I've come to recognize that fear with politics isn't just an accident, it actually also happens to be a strategy and something good for all of you and for me to know and to remember, is that politicians, political parties, and the news media know how to get people to vote for the person they want you to vote for or to think the way they want you to think. And one of the, the primary things that they use is this. It's fear. It, it's getting us to think that if the right thing doesn't happen, well, things are going to be absolutely horrible and the United States might implode. And I suppose that's possible, but it's good for us to recognize how much of a part of politics fear plays into it. Now, just take some of the issues that are on the table during this election cycle. And as you take a moment to look at those issues, I'm imagining that there's some semblance of fear or anxiety that rises up with you on most of these topics, depending on how things go in November. Fear of what's going to happen to crime if the wrong person gets elected. Fear of what's going to happen to education if the wrong person gets elected. Fear of what's going to happen to the environment if the wrong person gets elected. And as I thought about, well, what's ordinary with politics in our culture? What's the ordinary when it comes to culture and our view of government and elections and voting and politics? Here's, here's what I came to. Here's what's ordinary. People freaking out because they have put their hope and confidence in politicians and elections. Now, hear me. I'm not saying that elections don't make a difference and votes don't matter. They do. 
elections can have an effect on our country and, and the future. There's no doubt about it. And that's why you should vote. That's why you should be uh, brought up to speed and understand the issues and the candidates. For a Christian, uh, your faith and beliefs should inform your vote. In fact, <laughs> your faith and beliefs as a Christian should inform everything you do. But when it comes to politics, what I want you to know is it doesn't need to come down to just these two options. And sometimes that's the way our brains begin to think. It doesn't need to come down to these two options, that either my candidate wins or I need to be really, really, really scared. And I think so often, those are the two things that are in our minds and our hearts that we're thinking. This is the ordinary. It's going to be one of these or the other, which leads to my first fill-in for today. Don't let your life or your politics be controlled by fear. Don't let your life or your politics be controlled by fear. Now, it's not just something a pastor's telling you today. Did you know that the, the most often repeated command in the Bible is this one? Don't fear. Now, this is a really interesting command because it's so easy to understand. Don't be scared. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't fear. It's so easy to understand. It is so hard to do. Like, if you told your child, don't write on the wall with a marker, and then you take the markers away, now, that's an easy command. Don't jump on the bed, and then you lock the bedroom door. That's an easy one. But don't fear. It's like, don't blink. Or don't think, just turn your brain off. It's such a hard thing to do, isn't it? it, it, it it's one of those commands that need some direction with it. Because here's the thing. The more you think about the issues that cause you fear, the more that those things are brought in front of you. That, by the way, this is one of the reasons why I advocate not not watching the news at all, but watching it not all the time either. The more we think about something, the more fear it will bring. So here's what we need to do. And, and God's going to lead us in this direction as well. I'm just giving you a preview. When it comes to being able to fear less, well, what we need to do is think about other things. Or I'm going to say it this way, to refocus our minds and our hearts even in the political scene, even in an election cycle, refocus our hearts on something bigger, better, and stronger. This, this refocusing, this is the way to be unordinary when it comes to politics. This is the way to become unordinary when it comes to fear in our lives. Because when you look around and you see um, the way people treat each other, the way people talk to each other, the way people cancel each other, almost all of that comes from the root of people 
being scared. Scared something is going to be taken away from them. So if we can address fear, well, we have a chance to be unordinary. So God gives us some direction around how to make this happen. And what we're going to be doing is taking a look at a letter that uh, a pastor named Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. Now, let me give you a quick little background on Paul because it definitely uh, fits in with where we're going here. If, if you look at this map, it's the area around the Mediterranean Sea. Jerusalem and Israel is over here on the right side of the map. Uh, Paul, as a pastor, was also someone who traveled around the Mediterranean Sea, especially on the north side here, and started a whole bunch of churches in places like Colossae and Ephesus and Thessalonica and Corinth and even Rome. And so what Paul did was he would travel to a town. He would stay there for sometimes a few weeks, sometimes a few months. He would preach the gospel. He would gather people together. He would raise up leaders. He would start a church and then he would go and he'd go to another town and do that same thing all over again. Well, the town or city that he stayed in the longest, I wonder if any of you might know which one that is, but it was the town of Ephesus. Uh, Paul stayed in Ephesus for over three years. And in fact, he might have stayed there even longer. Uh, We'll talk about in a moment why he left But it's interesting, uh, Luke, he writes all about uh, Paul's missionary travels and the the, the churches that he started, and he writes a little bit about his leaving of Ephesus that I think brings some color to the love that Paul had for the Ephesians and the Ephesians had for Paul. Um, Listen as we read from Acts chapter 20. It says, when Paul had finished speaking to them, He knelt down with all of them, so they're all kneeling together on on the shore of the Mediterranean, and they prayed. They all wept, the pastor and his people, as they embraced and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship, and Paul left. Paul loved those Ephesian friends. And in fact, one of the things that we know was very much on his heart is that Paul knew that these Ephesians were in danger. You see, at this very time as he was leaving, there were political and religious opinions in Ephesus that were making life for the Ephesians very hard. Actually, if you read Acts 19, I encourage you to do that this week, you'll see why Paul had to leave. There's a silversmith named Demetrius, and he started to sort of uh, get people all up in arms about this gospel that Paul was preaching and how it contradicted the God of the Ephesians named Artemis, and a riot started, and Paul's fearing for his lives, and in fact, the Ephesian Christians, they're like saying, Paul, you got to get out of here. You got to leave. And so he left. And yet, if you left people you loved in a situation where there was a riot over what you taught, would you not, you'd think about them, wouldn't you? So Paul wrote them a letter. We know it 
It's in the Bible as Ephesians. And what we're going to look at is what Paul prayed about for them. Paul writes in the very first chapter what he's been praying about for them. And it's interesting what he prayed about for these Ephesians in the midst of a political and religious climate that was not easy for them. Uh, Let me say it a different way. It was interesting to see what Paul doesn't pray for, for them. He doesn't pray that they would have an easier life. He doesn't pray that they would have a safer life. He doesn't pray that they would have a change in political leadership in Ephesus. Maybe they wished those things. That's not what he prayed for. Listen to what Paul prayed for. I keep asking. It's a pastor's heart, isn't it? Pray for your people over and over again. It's what you do for your children, especially when they go off to college. You keep asking and praying, asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you peace, may give you a new leader in Ephesus, may give you the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. What did Paul pray for, for his people in the midst of a time where political and religious tensions were rising. Not that there would be a new elected official because Paul knew that wasn't the answer. When it came to the fear that they might be feeling, Paul prayed, I pray that my friends would know God better. I pray that they would understand and know God better, that they would know his love, that they would know his strength, that they would know his power, that they would know his perfect plan, that they would know all about him. Number two, here's the thing. This is where we need to refocus our hearts and our minds. Knowing God better will help you feel better. Knowing God better will help you feel better. You know, this is so different. This this prayer that Paul had for his people, I've already hinted at it. It's so different than the way that we pray when we're in the midst of difficulty, at least most of the time. Most of the time when we're in the midst of difficulty, our prayers are the help me, save me, deliver me prayers, right? Change the circumstances so that I can be happy, that I can be safe. And those are fine prayers. God says, pray for anything. But you know what sometimes those prayers have a little bit of a tinge of? A little hint of, God, I know best. I know what this country needs. I know what my life needs. I know what I need. So if you just listen to me and my prayer and do what I'm telling you to do, Lord, things would be better, right? And usually that's not the center of our hearts. But if you really think about it, isn't it weird that most of our prayers are telling God, the Almighty, what to do? It's interesting. Paul says, what I've been praying for, for those Ephesians, is simply that they would know God better, that they would better understand the wisdom, power, and love of God. You see, when you understand 
when I understand, when the Ephesians would really draw into how powerful God is, what do they have to fear? When they would really dig into the love that God has for them, why would they wonder about it? When they would understand his wisdom, why and how would they try to direct God to the right plan when he's omniscient and all-knowing and has a perfect plan? What is it that Paul prayed they would know better about him, about God? Well, verse 18 directs us to that. He says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, this word hope is always confusing for Bible readers in the English language because our definition of hope, the way we normally use it, is very different from what the biblical hope is at, at the heart of it. So when we use the word hope, it's usually a wish or desire. Like, I hope the Vikings beat the Bears today. Or I hope I find the love of my life. Um, by the way, I have. That, was just, that might be your hope, depending on your situation. Um, I hope that... I get the job. I hope the right person wins the election. It's a wish or it's a desire. But when it comes to biblical hope, especially hope in the things that God has done, it's different than a wish or a desire. Like it could happen, it might not. Instead, what it is, it's a guaranteed future that you're waiting to happen. It's a guarantee of something that's going to happen. It's just that you're waiting for it to actually happen. Now, think about hope in politics for a moment. Every time there's a new election cycle, like, in some ways, you got you to gotta just laugh at this, like how much we just kind of go in circles, right? Like every time the populace, all the people think that things are going to change a lot, Right? And, and they do in little ways, but we often think, okay, these new politicians, they're going to accomplish all the things that they promise. When has that happened? Never once. Every single time politicians overpromise and underdeliver. every single time. It's funny to go back now, you can go on YouTube and listen to some of the things that past politicians have promised. It's basically the same things that they're talking about now. It was just 30, 40 years ago, and, you know, they didn't accomplish the things that they said they would. But that's the way it is with earthly politicians, with government. And that's why it is so dumb to put our ultimate hope in them. They always over-promise and under-deliver. What does Paul say? As we refocus our minds that we should put our hope in, he says, go back to that verse, in the riches of his glorious inheritance. Paul says that when it comes to knowing God better, I want you to refocus your mind on a guaranteed future filled with a glorious inheritance. You see, Jesus, you got to understand something about his promises. He didn't promise 
that the United States of America will always be here or always be a great place to live. Jesus, you know what? He did not promise that for his people, meaning those that are his people by faith across the world, that they will always be in an environment where it's easy to be a Christian. He didn't promise you prosperity this side of heaven. In fact, what Jesus said is, in this world, you're going to have trouble. (laughs) What Jesus said is, sometimes when you follow me, you're going to have to pick up a cross and follow me. Those are the types of things that Jesus promised. And yet, he also said, but surely I will be with you always. To the very end of the age, Jesus didn't promise those things. What he promised was that someday, someday, every single person who puts their faith in him, puts their faith in Christ, they're going to receive a glorious inheritance. They're going to receive riches that last forever. And then he accomplished it. By not, by not receiving all the honor and glory that earthly kings receive, but instead by suffering death and enduring hell and then showing his victory as he conquered death for us and in our place. He did not overpromise and underdeliver. He promised a different type of kingdom that he will rule and reign over us and with us forever. And then he died and rose again to bring us glorious riches of a glorious inheritance. Here's what Paul wanted his Ephesian friends to remember and wants you to as well. Number three, that Jesus has already won. He has already won your future. Now, I want to get really practical with a little bit of a weird illustration, but I think it will be helpful, okay? So maybe some of you have watched America's Got Talent. It's kind of like this variety talent show that runs through the summer into the the early fall. And uh, so we watch it at our house every once in a while. But especially in those times where we can't catch it, what we found is that on YouTube, you can watch you know, most of the auditions and especially uh, we sometimes will watch like the golden buzzer editions, which, okay, what that auditions, what that means, the golden buzzer is this uh, button that the hosts can press if that audition was just you know, off the charts. Like off the charts, good. You press that golden buzzer. They get you know, a free trip all the way to the finals. Like These are the best of the best auditions, okay? So when you watch one of those clips on YouTube and you know that you know, there's going to be a golden buzzer at the end, you may not know necessarily, I don't when I watch it, what the talent's going to be. I don't know the person's story. I don't know what the judges are going to say. But here's what I do know. I know that there's going to be celebrating at the end. I know that at the end of the clip, there's going to be gold confetti and applause and a standing ovation and smiles and happiness and joy, maybe some tears. There's going to be celebrating at the end. And I thought for a moment, you know what? That is kind of like the life of a Christian. I don't know what this next election cycle is going to bring. Things might be better they might be worse. You know what? It somewhat depends on how you define better or worse and who you vote for. There's going to be difficulties this next year 
in your personal life. And there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs and there's going to be moments where you're like, I have no idea what God's up to right now. And there's going to be disappointments and there's going to be relational hardships. And at some point, someone you love is going to die. And at some point, unless Christ returns, you're going to get sick and die. And it's going to be up and it's going to be down and up and down. But here's what I know. There's going to be celebrating at the end. And I don't know that there's confetti in heaven, but there is celebrating when God's people come home and receive the glorious inheritance that Jesus has won for them. And so as you go through life and you remember, you have this sure hope of glorious inheritance, the riches of heaven. I don't know what tomorrow brings, but I know they're celebrating at the end. And so I can have joy and I can have peace to navigate the ups and downs because I know where my future is. My future has already been won. That's where our hearts need to be. That's what Paul was praying for, for the Ephesians, to have a future thought process, even though in the midst of their current reality, things were hard. There was one other thing he pointed out. He said, I pray continually that you also may know God's incomparably great power. And I like this. That power is for us who believe. He uses his power for the benefit of his children and his people. That power, he goes on and describes it, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Just imagine that for a moment. The type of power that God uses for his people is the same power he used to rise Christ from the dead. He uses that power for you and for me. What do we have to fear, huh? And seated Christ at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rulers. He seated far above all authorities, far above all power and dominion and every name Every leader's name that is invoked, Jesus is higher than those things. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Jesus, to be the head over everything for his people, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I love the imagery that Paul uses to describe the incomparably great power of Jesus. Uh, There's a a few different things here, but the one I want to point out a little bit and talk about is that God has placed all things under Christ's feet. This is an imagery that comes up uh, more than once throughout the Old and New Testament. Sometimes uh, it's said or written in the Psalms, especially Psalm 110, that um, God is going to make the enemies his footstool. Places all things under his feet. So let me ask, what are the things that cause you fear? Maybe there are some of the things that were on that list. Crime, economy, environment, 
quality. Maybe they're personal things. Maybe it's cancer or heart disease. Maybe what you fear is loneliness or not being respected or lack of success or maybe it's Russia, North Korea, Iran, China. I mean, what is it right now that causes you fear? Here's what Paul says. He says all those things, all things, I have made a footstool. All things are under my feet. All things, those things that worry you so much about what happens depending on who gets elected, what's going to happen the next two years or four years, what's going to happen to this country, like they're, they're valid concerns. But do you know what Paul was saying he prayed for, for his Ephesian friends, that they would know God better and that they would know that all things are under his feet. That thing that worries you, it's like God's ottoman, his footstool. And I don't think Jesus is, you know, yawning and just sitting back. We know that's not true, but I also know He's not too worried. He's not worried about the next two years or four years. He's got things under control. He's got this. And if it's helpful, I want you to forever remember that time that during his sermon, Pastor Ben sat down and put his feet on an ottoman. Because that is a great picture of what Paul prayed and how God is. He's got things. He's got it. Number four, fill in. Jesus has all things under his feet. So <laughs> why so scared? Why do you need to fear? Are you concerned? Sure. Why be controlled by fear? I love how the the psalmist writes about it. I think it's helpful. In Psalm 2, the psalmist writes, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? He observes, The kings of the earth rise up and rulers of this earth, they band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. It's amazing. When people have earthly power, how quickly they forget about God and how quickly they just do their own thing. It's happened for centuries, millennia. The psalmist writes about it. Now, (laughs) what's God doing when this happens? Next verse. God laughs. Not like, um, oh, this is funny, laugh. It's more like the, the laugh you might have um, during Halloween when your son puts on his Spider-Man costume and he thinks he can really shoot webs out of his wrists. It's like, Dad, don't be afraid, okay? I've got webs here. And you laugh, like, that's cute. 
you're not going to help at all. <laughs> or when your daughter puts on her Elsa dress during Halloween and gets disappointed because she can't make things frozen, right? You laugh. Like, that's cute. So cute. That's the type of laugh that God has. Like, oh, that's cute. These rulers think they can overthrow me. <laughs> Fat chance. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Because he's got this. He's in control. Why do you worry? Don't fear, God says. So, as we wrap up, what's ordinary when it comes to politics? What's ordinary, and some of us, most of us feel this in our own hearts, is to be angry and worried and rude and to cancel people. And all of this, if we really think about it, almost all of it comes from the reality of fear. We're scared. We're fearful that this country may not be what we want it to be. We're fearful that something's going to be taken away from us. And, and that's real. But we don't have to fear. As responsible citizens in our country, there is something we can do. What does it look like to be unordinary? First thing is this to be involved. So as responsible citizens, we should be aware of the issues. We should be aware of the candidates. We, we should exercise our right to vote. Be involved. But at the very same time, do not fear. Be involved. Do not fear. That's the way to be unordinary. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you, first of all, for um, this, this country and this nation where we get to live. Lord, we know that it's not perfect. You know that it's not perfect. And sometimes we contribute to the dysfunction in this country. Lord, we pray that you would guide our, our leaders um, to more and more uh, find their hope in you rather than in themselves. We, we pray that as Christians that we would be, um, first of all, uh, healthy citizens who pray for our leaders and who can be identified by the love that we show and share. And Lord, then we ask that you would help us to not fear, but to recognize that all things are under your feet to help us realize that when we get to know you even better, what happens is the fear slowly begins to get smaller and maybe even go away. We ask you to be with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.